Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. Today, from London, I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The war in Ukraine hasn't been much influenced by China, yet. But how do Chinese people see it? We speak with a Chinese blogger now in exile in Ukraine who's doing his best to spread news of the conflict untainted by propaganda. And young people in Japan have had enough of stagnant wages, a weak currency, and dim job prospects. We hear from one of many who are seeking greater fortunes abroad. First up, though. Eleven months ago, President Joe Biden came to Poland to denounce a war he'd hoped wouldn't happen. Yesterday, he returned to the capital Warsaw and came out swinging. And I'll repeat tonight what I said last year in the same place. A dictator bent on rebuilding an empire will never be able to ease the people's love of liberty. Brutality will never grind down the will of the free. And Ukraine, Ukraine will never be a victory for Russia. Never. Mr. Biden mentioned Vladimir Putin by name 10 times. Russia's president had given his own speech earlier, a rambling two-hour affair laced with false claims about Ukraine and the war, which he said the West had started. By now, this is not a battle over the facts of the war. It's a hint at an all-too-familiar great power struggle, a split-screen of how each leader views the other, while Ukraine and its freedom hang in the balance. Yesterday we had the remarkable prospect of the presidents of Russia and the United States almost at the same time giving totally contrasting speeches about their understanding of the war. Edward Carr is The Economist's deputy editor. In Moscow, Vladimir Putin blamed the war on Ukraine and the West and made no mention of the fact that he'd suffered a number of reverses over the past year. And then just shortly after that in Warsaw, Joe Biden rebutted that forcefully, uh, declared America's commitment to Ukraine and explained why he felt that this war was all about rejecting Russia's aggression and tyranny and supporting freedom and democracy in Ukraine. So let's look a little closer at both those speeches. What did we learn from what Mr. Putin said? 
There were two interesting things about Putin's speech. The first was, I think, his attempt to send the signal that this special military operation is now normal. He put in all sorts of changes to housing for troops, to benefits, to recruiting weapons scientists. He made it sound as if this was the state that Russia is going to be in for the long haul, and he sent a signal that way. The second thing was his suspending Russia's participation in the New START nuclear arms agreement with the United States. And this is an agreement that limits weapons and also, importantly, provides for a series of inspections. It was kind of in a bad way, partly because of the pandemic and partly because of the war. But this is an unwelcome signal. And if you worry about nuclear arms, it's something that I think should bother you. And in turn, the forceful rebuttal you mentioned from Mr. Biden, what did you hear in all of that? I think there was a lot of messaging here. He clearly listened to Putin's speech and he wanted to send a signal too that the alliance behind Ukraine is firm and committed. It had accomplished a lot that he conceived of this war as a war for really important and fundamental values of democracy and freedom. Yes, we would stand up for sovereignty and we did. Yes, we would stand up for the right of people to live free from aggression. And we did. And we would stand up for democracy. And we did. And yesterday, I had the honor to stand with President Zelensky in Kyiv to declare that we will keep standing up for these same things, no matter what. And indeed, in fact, I think its unity has been impressive over this past year, but also to signal to Putin that it's not about to break apart and that he is really committed to it. So in their different ways... Both of these leaders were signaling that this war is going to last for a long time, either as a hot war in which the fighting continues, or I would say as a cold war, if there's some sort of ceasefire, a sense that the threat to Ukraine from Russia won't suddenly evaporate the minute the shooting stops. So you mentioned the outcomes of either hot war or cold war and not an outright peace. What would it take for that kind of peace? Well, crucially, I think, is the next few months on the battlefield. We have a Russian spring offensive seemingly already underway, although they're not really making very much progress. And the view at the moment is that the Ukrainian spring offensive could happen in April or May. And the first question really is whether either side takes territory. And quite a lot rests on that because this might end up being the last really big offensive for a while. And so if nothing happens, then the stalemate continues. But if Ukraine can take a large amount of territory, then the pressure starts to build on Vladimir Putin. He depends at home on a belief that he can actually win this war. And the more territory Ukraine takes, and its ambitions are to go all the way to the international borders of the country, taking back the four oblasts that Putin annexed in September, as well as Crimea. If it could go all that way, then the point of the war, the futility of the war starts to become manifest, even in Moscow, where Putin is trying to cover up the reverses that he's had. And so what in turn would it take for Ukraine to have a good chance of taking a lot of territory? It's not clear it can, but if it's to have any chance, it needs arms. It needs spare parts. It needs munitions, longer range artillery, 
And ultimately, I think it needs aircraft. And part of the reason that it's not getting these faster is a sort of reluctance on the part of its backers in the West because they're worried about escalation from Russia. But there's another reason as well, which is, I think, even more worrying, which is that the defense industries of the West are really not equipped for the strategic realities of the 21st century, be it in Europe, where they're struggling to keep Ukraine supplied, or indeed in the Asia-Pacific theater, where if there were a war, there really isn't very much equipment to fight one. So in a way, this war is a wake-up call for weapons procurement in the West. Whether there was a war in Ukraine or not, it's incredibly run down. So there's a question for me about whether Ukraine gets the arms it needs to win the war. And then just imagine that there's a, a peace, a very insecure peace, I'd argue, because if Vladimir Putin's still in power, he'll still have designs on Ukraine. That's, that's very clear. And of course, Russia has the same problem with munitions. It's getting through them very, very quickly, and it's lost a huge amount of equipment. But the difference is, and it came through very clearly in Putin's speech yesterday, is that he's gearing the entire economy towards fighting this war. The factories, employees, the government budget, enormous amounts of resources are going to uh, go into helping his troops prosecute the war. Whereas in the West, there are many other calls on, on uh, public spending, healthcare, welfare, you name it, cost of living crisis. And I, I think you need to sort of see it in those terms. And you mentioned that the peace that might result would be an insecure one. How to make it more secure? How to make sure this doesn't happen again? I think one of the things that you can see in Putin's attitude all the way through this war is that he's not about to give up. And there's a real worry in NATO that if there is a peace agreement, it'll take him three to five years to rebuild his army. And he'll show no compunction about breaking any agreement he makes. He's, he's already broken agreement in Ukraine. And so what you need to do is once the fighting is finished, you need to give Ukraine security guarantees. The most powerful of these would be membership of NATO. But that entails risks. And all the way through the war, NATO members have wanted to avoid direct contact with Russian troops for very good reason. You do not want two nuclear armed powers confronting each other directly on the battlefield. So the alternative is to make Ukraine into a sort of porcupine so heavily armed that the idea of a second attempt to invade it really doesn't make much strategic sense. They're both difficult routes. And the only thing I'd say is that the more precarious Ukraine's position at the end of the war, the stronger the security guarantees have to be in order to deter or deny Russia the chance of a second invasion. But this threat will remain, I believe, for as long as Vladimir Putin's in power and quite possibly during the tenure of his successor. This is a long haul. It's not going to be over this time next year. Edward, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. 
Even though China has never officially taken a side in the war in Ukraine, it's been pretty clear what side the government is on. Barkley Bram is an assistant producer for The Intelligence. First, there was Xi Jinping's announcement of the no-limits friendship between the two countries on the eve of the war. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs has also taken a firm line. They say things like the U.S. is the biggest winner from the war and the originator of the Ukrainian problem. Most nights on the evening news, the Xinwen Lianbo, Chinese viewers are fed Russian talking points about the war. 俄罗斯国防部二十八号称，俄军在第聂伯罗彼得罗夫斯克打击了乌军坦克旅，在库皮扬斯克、南顿涅茨克等方向。But from Odessa, one Chinese man has been trying to fight back against the propaganda. 晚上好，我是吉前，中国人，北京人。这本护照是马其顿使馆发的。Wang Jixian, a 37-year-old software engineer originally from Beijing. Has been vlogging his experience of the war. So tell me more about his story. Well, I actually called him last week. We had to reschedule our interview because of power cuts. When we spoke, he warned me that air raid sirens had been going off all morning. He came to Ukraine from Macedonia, where he'd been working before. He arrived in 2021. So he was there before the war started. Why didn't he leave when it when it did? I asked him that, and he told me about his initial reason for staying. One of the reasons is I want to support here people. Also, it's not. I, I don't feel in this such such region. I should just walk away. I, I feeling I start feeling myself is part of those Ukrainian because my colleague, my friends, they are all here, and we've been working together for so many years. That's initial motivation why I'm staying here. But then. During the war, he actually got married, and that gave him a new reason to stay. Ukraine had become his home. And what is it that that pushed him to make videos about his experience? He had an interesting answer to that. I asked him why he started blogging, and he told me that that was the wrong question. It's not about why I start. It's a、uh, more interesting about when I started. Right? I'm not a, a professional news reporter, vlogger. My my work is programming. So. Before the war, I'm the guy almost not talking so much on social media. The reason why I make this decision when I started is、uh, right after the war. I started vlogging things, and why I started because there are so many rumors that bothers my life. He wanted to push back against the misinformation that was spreading at home. When people would say everyone was going hungry, he'd film something in response. I say it's not very true, and I go to the the green market. The food market to show them. See, we have a beef steak. We have a fr- fresh fish.、Uh, we have a food. We don't need to eat uh, eat uh, bread and hiding ourselves every day、uh, in the basement, like the, the rumor says. When people say I don't have food, I say no, I have food. Here is the food. So, how did people respond to these videos? Well, the reaction has been pretty mixed. Internationally, his videos have been well received. On YouTube, he gets favorable comments from the Chinese diaspora. But within China, a lot of people have attacked him. They say he is Jingshen Wukalanren, spiritually Ukrainian. Now that may sound like a good thing to us, but from the perspective of the people applying that label, it's akin to calling him a Nazi. 
but he's careful not to blame those people. As he said, after thinking hard about it for over a year. So in reality, is uh, we have uh, Wang Xinban. There is a, a censorship agency which controls uh, all media. Like only, we have a policy now, and now it's even getting stronger. Having been fed a diet of Russian propaganda by Chinese state media, average people can't help but view his content through that lens. But he wants to push people to see a diversity of opinions. Today, in one video, he says, I have no love for that party. Does that make me wrong? You love it with all your life. You think of it as your wife. Well, I don't like your wife. Is that my fault? You want to kill me just because I don't like your wife, your mother? Does that make your cause the righteous one? So on an issue as divisive as a motive as this, you, you might expect he was going to get a lot of online abuse. That's right, but it hasn't just been abuse. His videos have all been deleted from the Chinese internet. But worse, his government ID has now been blocked from registering on any website in China, virtually blocking him from the internet entirely. Another sad moment, I talking to myself on WeChat. I turn on my WeChat... I leave a message to myself and I see the message right away rejected back to me. This means that he can't communicate with any of his family back home. He can't make online purchases. Even streaming music, that's no longer possible. But he said there are Chinese people who do reach out via VPN and offer to relay messages for him and help him to get stuff to his family. He is incredibly grateful to them. And having made the decision not to return at the start of the war, can he return now? Can he ever return? Well, that's complicated. If I back to China, can I back to my home again? My this home, I'm, I'm talk, I'm talking about Ukraine because I married here. My wife is here. Can I back to my China home? Yes. Can I from my China home come back here? That's a big question mark. Technically, there's no reason he can't return to China. He has a Chinese passport, but there's a real fear for his safety. He could be arrested for the things he said in his videos. He's also unpopular with many people who take Russia's side in the war. And if he did go back to China, there's the real risk he would never be able to come back to Ukraine where his wife is. That's the most beautiful thing. I, I, I want to just share you, you know, European girl, uh, Ukrainian girl, it was so difficult, kind of difficult to convince anyone to ma- for, for uh, a marriage, right? Especially today. We just... Tell each other, see, we don't know where we're going to go. We, one day we will die. I mean, yeah, normally we will die because we are old, but now we don't know which bomb going to just take away our life. If there is one thing I will regret before I die is I want to marry you. Yeah, if, if I don't say that and tomorrow or me or you no longer exist anymore, I will hate myself for the rest of my life. So let us do something to not make us regret then we marry. But that's what I find really touching about Wang's story. His story is also a love story. We hear a lot about how awful the war is and all of the suffering of the people involved. But there are these moments of beauty. There are these really human and touching things that happen. I spoke to Wang on Valentine's Day. 
I hope when you、uh, publish this broadcast, at that moment, we still alive. My my home still here, because recently I hear so many news, and especially for the coming days, the war is keep get、uh, upgrading. Like the Syrians is more much often than a month ago. I don't know. This moment I'm still alive. We don't know what ha- happens tomorrow. But what we can do is today is Valentine's Day. I will have to make my wife to being coming the most lucky girl. That's my mission today. Barkley, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. Like a lot of young people in Japan, Ochiya Yuri was struggling to make ends meet. She was frustrated by a job that paid her too little to live comfortably, and she was unable to picture a better future for herself in Japan. So eventually, she left for Australia, where she could make a lot more. And she's not the only one. So Yuri is one of a growing number of Japanese youth drawn to work abroad. Moika Iida writes about Japan for the Economist. Places like Australia, Canada, and America are popular destinations. Applicants for Australia's working holiday visa more than doubled in 2022. Working holiday is a program that allows people under the age of 31 to live and work in the country for a year. And Indeed, which is a recruitment platform, reports seeing record numbers of searches for overseas jobs. And study abroad agents in Japan have started advertising the term dekasegi ryugaku, which means earning money while studying overseas. And it's been picked up quite extensively in Japanese media as well. This is quite interesting because dekasegi or economic migration is usually a term that Japanese people associate with migrant workers from developing countries, but now they're using the term to refer to Japanese people or、uh, people who live in a rich country. And the idea that these study abroad agents are selling is that going abroad. Isn't just good in terms of gaining life experience, but it also makes sense economically. You can go abroad to boost your salary. And and is that true? Then this trend really is a reflection that that Japanese can simply make more money abroad. It's true in places like Australia, the minimum wage is twice as high as Japan's, and the weak yen has made it more lucrative to. Work and earn money in a foreign currency. The average annual wage in Japan is around forty thousand dollars, well below the OECD average of around fifty thousand. And Japan has a heavily seniority-based employment system, so young people have it especially hard. If you're a recent graduate from a university, even if you have a white-collar job, you can only expect to earn around two hundred twenty thousand yen, which is about one thousand six hundred dollars each month. And so those kinds of of salary prospects then are are leaving Japan's young people pretty disillusioned, I guess. It does seem like the economic situation in Japan is making young people feel quite anxious. A survey by a nonprofit called Nippon Foundation showed that only fourteen percent of young Japanese believe that their country's future will get better. 
And there's reasons apart from the economic ones. There's also cultural reasons as well. A lot of Japanese youth are dissatisfied with Japan's rigid corporate culture and lack of work-life balance. So that makes them drawn to places like America, Canada, and Australia. But surely there's a danger to those who remain in Japan if a lot of talented, ambitious young people just want out of Japan. There are still some barriers that prevent Japanese people from going abroad, like lack of foreign language skills. So finding an overseas job is still far from a mainstream option. But frustration towards low wages is very much there. And Japan already suffers from population decline and acute labor shortages. So it cannot afford to lose any talent at all. So it's very worrying that a bigger exodus could be looming. And also Japan heavily relies on migrant workers from places like Southeast Asia. But wages in neighboring countries like South Korea and Taiwan are increasing. So it's very likely that these migrant workers could also start going to these countries instead. So surely Japan's government recognizes this threat and and this trend. Is there anything policy-wise it's been doing? There is more of an effort to increase wages in Japan, but it's probably necessary for government and industry to think more seriously about how to retain young talent. Of course, there are still a lot of people who prefer to live in Japan, and there are also economic advantages. So if you go to places like Australia, wages are much higher, but prices and living costs are much higher as well. Inflation has hit Japan. It's been much more moderate than elsewhere in the rich world, and housing in Japan is also a lot more affordable. Uni who we heard a while ago, moved to Australia a year ago, and now she misses certain things about home. So Yuri missed everything being so orderly and well-maintained. She said in Japan, it's very rare to feel any kind of inconvenience. For instance, the trains always come on time and the customer service is great. But she doesn't see herself going back to Japan and working there. So it seems like the general sentiment expressed by a lot of young Japanese people, including Yuri, is that visiting or being a tourist in Japan is great because everything's so convenient and cheap, but it's terrible to work there. So Japan has to find ways to convince its young workforce to stay in the country. Otherwise, more and more talent are likely to leave the country. Thanks very much for joining us, Moika. Thank you so much for having me. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can drop us a line at podcasts at economist.com or leave us a rating wherever you listen. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.